you. We're getting so high tech around here with all of our little segues and everything. Um, it's great to see so many people here today. I think hopefully it bespeaks the, the occasion for this exhibition. It's been 10 years since there's been a museum survey of the work of Takashi Murakami in this country. And uh, we're thrilled to present this second half of his career, which I really feel is a, a, a new flowering uh, of his career. And you're going to see things upstairs that, well, that nobody's ever seen before, for one, because there's brand new works that he's made. Uh, but also, you'll see things from the beginning of his career that no one has really seen, especially in the West, but, but even in Japan. Um, Takashi was kind enough to, when I was proposing this exhibition to him, uh, I really wanted to focus in on the development of his painting over the years, and so we're tracing his painting over 25, uh, no, 30 years, really. And um, he was a little, had some trepidations about this, showing the earliest work, but I really think that by including this early work from the 1980s, um, you see the foundations of his work. And one of the things that I've always found is how deeply serious he really is about his work, how grounded it is in art history, uh, especially Japanese art history, and yet that's something that's often missed when you're bedazzled by smiling daisies and bright colors and Mr. Dope uh, characters, um, whether it's in paintings or wallpaper or keychains. Um, there, there still is something incredibly serious and incredibly deep about his work that I really wanted um, all of us to stop and think about more, more, um, Poignantly, and I think, and I'm hoping that when you see this early work, such as a painting from 1988, uh, where he's already starting to kind of navigate his Eastern influences and Eastern background, but also Western contemporary art conventions and ideas and, and practices. Um, you also will see a spectacular painting from 1989 that's over 23 feet long, where already in 1989 he's thinking big, um, pushing the limits of this Japanese Nihonga training that he had earned a PhD in, uh, and starting to match those techniques to the spectacular ambitions of, of Western contemporary art. Uh, and so here you can almost imagine a, a painting of this size starting to be populated later on with figures that, like Mr. Dove or with mushrooms or, or smiling flowers and things like that. So I think the, the groundwork should be very clear as you enter the first uh, gallery of the exhibition. Um, we're also going to trace the evolution of this great character of his called Mr. Dobe, which um, started out very humbly with this very simple little mark that with these very round face and round ears. It was his attempt again to kind of try to put his own uh, character into the image stream that includes so many iconic cartoon characters, both East and West. Um, for him, he's always been very fascinated with what happened in Japan after World War II, especially the American imposition of, of all kinds of laws and rules, as well as the cultural imports of, of America into Japan, and then what Japan did with that material um, once it was, it was left to its own uh, creative devices. And so this was his attempt to really move into that territory with Dobe. And we work uh, our way through the evolution of Mr. Dobe throughout this exhibition too. And so you'll see him gaining arms and legs and creating all kinds of expressions. Um, and, and again, hopefully too, you'll start to see these monochromatic backgrounds that came out of his Nihonga training starting to be uh, imbued with a new kind of pop sensibility as he starts to work through through the 1990s and into the 2000s. 
Um, we, as I said, there's Mr. Dobe uh, in all kinds of guises, small paintings, big paintings, uh, Mr. Dobe being kind of tormented and put into mathematical equations such as this painting, um, or classic works like this that we, uh, we borrowed works from all museums and private collections all over the world, literally from Asia, Europe, North America. This amazing painting called 727 comes to us from the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And here again, you really see Mr. Dobe um, being put back almost into art history, into this burbling, stylized river that's flowing across these, this three-panel uh, surface that, that, of course, recalls Japanese screen painting, uh, but also his Nihonga training, I think, is, is evident in this picture, too. Uh, and then also we delve into the realm of super flat, this amazing theory that Murakami created in the late 1990s to describe not only characteristics of his own work, such as here where Mr. Dobe is really being flattened into these, these decal-like strips on, on his canvas, but also his interests in flattening of distinctions between cultural products where a keychain could live next to a painting um, and a plush toy, and he sees all of that as, as kind of equal expression in a way. Um, the super flat also has darker, more socio-historical, political connotations, because of course, when an atom bomb lands on a city like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, buildings, people are literally flattened. Uh, and so there's a lot of, of that history that's, that's always nipping at the heels of these otherwise bright, seemingly cheery uh, paintings and sculptures that you'll see throughout the show. So that's another point that I'm really hoping people don't forget when they look at Murakami's work. There are, even though this is a painting show, there are certain select sculptures that we've included in the exhibition. In some cases, there are, paint, there are sculptures that were originally debuted with uh, paintings or where he feels like there's a direct relationship between the paintings and the sculptures. And so uh, it was, it, we have a great painting that uh, called Supernova that shows all of these mushrooms being introduced into his work in the late 90s. And then we have a sculpture like this where Mr. Dobe becomes three-dimensional and is traipsing through this forest of psychedelic mushrooms as well. We have um, some of the classic things that, that we feel like our audiences and all of you would expect to see in a Murakami exhibition, such as these, these really iconic daisy paintings. Uh, we've installed them in a really spectacular fashion upstairs where daisy paintings such as this are hanging on top of daisy wallpaper. So it's an absolute retinal overload. Um, but it's, it's another innovation of his that I think is, is just hard to deny. And also maybe in a situation too where you can see him taking on someone like Andy Warhol, who made cow wallpaper that he would sometimes hang paintings on top of and, and one-upping Warhol in terms of pure visual overload. Um, we also have some real true masterpieces from uh, throughout his career. Um, really his, his 2007 retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles concluded with a painting like this. It's called Tantan Bo Puking. This one is also 24 plus feet wide and, and 15 feet or so tall. It shows Mr. Dove in his most grotesque, uh, but also most cinematic. I think there's definitely hints at that film director uh, Miyazaki in here where there's this bucolic landscape that this monster is landing upon. You can think about Godzilla movies and, and those kinds of Japanese monster um, products uh, and Murakami sort of combining all of that in this tour de force painting. So we're thrilled to have been able to, uh, to bring this to Chicago. 
Um, we also include some of his famous diversions, and I think this is where, again, Murakami has been a real innovator, crossing over from the sometimes precious uh, contemporary art world into really productive and interesting and oftentimes controversial collaborations with, with other partners from the worlds of fashion, music. So we have a great room where we not only include this uh, earlier sculpture that he did of this Kanye bear, um, and, but also he went back to the imagery that he worked on for the Kanye West uh, records of this time period and made a, this is a brand new painting that he's made that's debuting for the first time in the exhibition. It's absolutely spectacular. And there's another Kanye painting as well in the show that, uh, that we're really excited about. But then uh, there was a turning point in his career that uh, I think it's, you can kind of locate around 2007 with that retrospective. 2007, he also joined Gagosian Gallery in New York, this powerhouse commercial art gallery. He also had set auction records for himself at the time. He was working with Kanye. And he had a certain kind of uh, almost uh, creative crisis, and maybe we'll talk about this later this morning. And he see, you see him turning away from uh, this very poppy kind of work back towards history and Japanese art history in particular. Uh, there's a great video that we've edited together that's upstairs where you see him saying that he wasn't even sure if he was Japanese anymore around this time period. So he really turns and the whole second half of the exhibition is devoted to works like this where he's looking back at Zen brush painting and these are paintings of the Zen patriarch called Daruma or the Bodhidharma. Um, also, those flower paintings that we all know turned in a different direction too and become also more historically inflected and they look more like chrysanthemums, which is the imperial flower. Uh, or paintings like this too where he's also not only looking at Japanese art history but also Chinese art history, uh, Chinese uh, figures, uh, the evolution of Buddhism in particular across Asia and blending his, his super flat style, this technique that he's developed through with that big studio uh, workforce and these historical subject matters. And so these paintings such as this where he also is really using a lot of very complicated computer uh, renderings and silk screens are some of the most complicated, spectacular paintings that I think anybody is making anywhere in the world today. And when you get up close to these, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll agree with me. There's also um, works in the show that, that benefit from the MCA's gigantic spaces um, and test the limits of our spaces. This is a painting that's 63 feet long that Murakami painted, in this case painting by hand with a brush rather than using silk screens. Um, and again, looking back at art history, this is based on a painting in the MFA Boston's collection of a similar uh, twisting, turning, writhing dragon. Uh, again, absolutely spectacular when you see it in the flesh. This image doesn't even do it justice. Uh, and then paintings such as this, which is also over 30 feet long, and this is a painting called 100 Arhats. And Arhats are, again, these Buddhist monks that would have wandered around the countryside um, bringing solace and wisdom and things to people. And every single one of these 100 figures, there's tiny ones at the bottom and large ones at the beginning, are all individualized. Their nose hairs, their toenails, their robes, their warts, everything is completely detailed down to the, the tiniest line and coloration, and they're absolutely, again, spectacular to behold. And, and this, again, I think will, will give you a different picture of the Murakami that we, that we think we know. And then the other thing that's, that's fantastic um, is that he really rose to the occasion of this exhibition, and he pushed his team to make a gigantic 
shipped from Tokyo to Chicago, and his team came here to finish varnishing and painting, trimming the canvases, and our team finished installing this 114-foot-long, 45-panel painting that completely surrounds the, the final room of the exhibition. So you'll be seeing this for the first time. Um, and this is a picture from the studio of his team posing before one just one part of the painting before it got crated up and shipped off to Chicago. So we're thrilled about this. And um, he also has, has really run with the octopus theme, and I, and I, should, I kind of neglected to say that the, the title of the show is The Octopus Eats Its Own Leg, which is based on a Japanese folk saying uh, that talks about, uh, that references the idea that if you're kind of in distress, sometimes sacrifices need to be made, and in nature an octopus will even eat off its own leg if it's diseased or something, knowing that a new one will grow and a new chapter will open, and I think Murakami has a bit of that fatalistic cannibalization in his work, knowing that it's going to open up new doors, and uh, so he's really played with that uh, in that new painting and creating all kinds of great, uh, a great new octopus character that I think we'll all see a lot in his work in the future. So um, that is the, the basic overview of the show, but I think the thing that you really wanted to hear is the man himself. So I'd love to, at this point, welcome Takashi Murakami on the stage.
So I bought the very cheap canvases and uh, I painted myself. Looks like I got uh, you know very bad memories, you know flashback. So, but uh, looks like that the impression. But for you, uh, you were talking a little bit about the, just just now the technical development. But can you sort of see how the sophistication of the making of the paintings kept getting? greater and greater as you go through the exhibition and as you go through your career as your studio developed and things like that. Is that uh, rewarding to see that evolution? Yeah, uh, okay. So one of the uh, big turning point painting, painting is a big mushroom painting. So that piece was, uh, we spent the time over uh, 18 months, 18 months. So in New York studio, so that moment was uh, super painful, like kind of no money and uh, you know the people like my employee was super stressful because no one knows what is the goal. So why so we have to paint mushrooms? <laughs> so I cannot you know making a good answer. So something like that, you know, experience. And then uh, I, my studio was, you know, step by step grow the kind of the, you know, how can I say, communication flow. So we built. So and then right now is a, uh, you know, much maybe much better. So much smoother and a much can complex painting. And, and you told me that, that some of that evolution came about not only with adding people to the studio to help you make these enormous paintings that would be very difficult to make with one person, but also computers yeah, started yeah, yeah. to be, be used. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Uh, so I'm using, uh, after this big mushroom painting, so uh, in a technically uh, six screen print, I started at, the, at this moment was. Right now it's uh, one painting using, for example, the last room having a you know, big painting. That painting have, uh, using for the, how many thousand, like maybe over 2,000 screen. So that means uh, we, you know, every day we using for the 24 hours, uh, like, maybe like four people to uh, manipulate in a computer and then we offer to the six screen company kind of that you know process and also that you know like the computer power is right now is very powerful that's why we can make it for a very complex design thing we used to we, we can't do the complex design that's why we may, we have to make it for the vector, you know, the shape. Like a, you know, circle is very you know, light data. So, but then right now is a you know, convertible, very very you know, uh, heavyweight the data too. So that's why you know, now my painting style is uh, little by little changed. And I think this is what the audience will see when you go upstairs to these new paintings where. All these silk screens are used. There's so much density of, of information, of texture, of color, of pattern, 
Um, and yet, I, I, they don't feel like computer paintings. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting how you still maintain this very kind of handmade quality to them. They don't feel uh, like they're mass produced. They're, they really feel cra crafted. How, how do you maintain that balance in the work? When I'm making for the theater, exactly, I'm using for the computer, but uh, you know, when, uh, how can I say, actually paint by hand. And uh, you know, or like my crew is paint by hand each each piece. So that's why you know this is you know exactly hand paint, and uh, the finish looks like uh, you know hand paint painting. So what is the point? Well, yeah, I think. So <laughs> good. <laughs> but it's that's something that you really want to achieve. You want them to feel. Not like they're made by a machine, but that they uh -huh. are made by hand. Is that is that accurate? Um, I don't know. So because you know, okay, so good example. So uh, this time is not you know maintained for the sculptures. That's why you know few sculptures setting, and also that this sculpture, you know, constants. Looks like by you know handmade. Looks like handmade, but uh, my sculptures uh, anytime to you know making a you know goal target is not hand handmade. Like looks like a you know uh, kind of product you know shape. That's why we have to making a you know long term like oh, like one piece, uh, one big piece is a uh, you know. We still doing it over, you know, thirteen years. So that that goal is, uh, you know, looks like product. So that's why I never, you know, try to the paintings uh, looks like a product, uh, like you know, kind of without the hand paint style thing. So, but one day, you know, I will try to something like that, you know. What about, um, to move away from some of these technical issues, um, what about your relationship both to Japan and to the Western contemporary art scene? Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to, to really enter the, the contemporary art scene and how you've navigated that? And, and then and you've also talked in the past about losing maybe your Japanese-ness and trying to find that again. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Uh, when I was student, so big influence came from the exactly the local stuff. But that moment was a big move, big movement in uh, New York City. The New York art scene was uh, simulations, like kind of Richard Prince, you know Jeff Koons, uh, like looks at that you know, artist. So and then I watching for the, this movement is a. Uh, you know, these artists using for the American materials, like Michael Jackson and the Marlboro, you know, the poster images. And at the same time, I saw in the MoMA a big uh, show in Anselm Kiefer. So he using also the, you know, Germany history. So that means that I was thinking contemporary art world, you know, using for the you know, each 
each artist you know have to presentation for the kind of the background like uh, you know uh, where from where from you are your background history or something that's why I was you know training to the you know looking at the, what is where from so my career where from my idea so and then naturally so I, like now is uh, I am researching something so right now is uh, you know go through the Japan because you know, Japanese uh, art history came from originally from China Korea and India so like kind of the, you know Vikram uh, from Vikram that's why you know uh, the newest painting is the motif is uh, almost Chinese Images, so kind of that you know, looking for the the, the roots of the you know my you know history. Kind yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. And, and you, one thing you've also said to, to me before is sometimes you feel like you have to put on a spectacle uh, in order to almost get attention to Japan as a contemporary art. Place or you as a Japanese artist to kind of fight, almost fight for the spotlight within the, the contemporary art scene. Uh, is, is that something that you still feel like you you need to do? I mean, making paintings that are bigger and bigger and bigger, or sculptures that are more spectacular in their uh, manufacture. Uh, do you still feel that need to kind of compete for the for the spotlight in that way? Maybe why I love making for the big something is. Uh, my generation stuff, because uh, I told you about the you know Kifa stuff. But before I was, I came to New York and then watching to the uh, Julian Schnabel thing, and also the new painting, you know, the movement paintings was huge. So that experience was, you know, big, you know, very strong imprint in my head. That's why I followed that, you know, again, again, again. So this kind of the uh, influence, maybe. So not just, you know, battle with uh, some Japanese art something, or, uh, you know, much more primitive, I think. Um, could, you, so could you talk a little bit, um, and one of the other things that's very unique about your career, um, where I think you've been a real innovator, is in the realm of collaborations, um, not just within contemporary art, but outside of contemporary art. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Uh, okay. Um, the most famous collaboration with the Louis Vuitton. And uh, I am making for the film and animation. So kind of the different material I'm, I'm using and also the you know, different, uh, how can I say, uh, media. So making a bridge. So, but this is you know everything is uh, uh, not structural thing. Like this is a confidence almost. So when you know I heard from you know the Mark Jacobs assistant. So like when I was you know started to collaboration with Louis Vuitton was the coincidence. I was I had a show in Culture Foundation. And then one 
watching like my show and then you know these people to say to Mark oh this artist is great and uh, you know can we invite this artist and then you know I you know I was you know start to the collaboration so but uh, I never know before to the what is a Louis company and uh, what is a fashion brand and stuff so that's why everything is I think coincidence and we're, we're um, right now with this exhibition exploring a, another great uh, partnership uh, with a company called Complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, this might be a good opportunity to invite Mark Echo to the stage, who is the founder and chief brand and creative officer of Complex. And we can, uh, maybe Takashi, you can talk a little bit about what you've been doing with Mark, and especially the audience that Mark brings that, that I know is, is of interest to you. and then. Mark can tell us a little bit about what we're trying to cook up together here at the NCA too. the new 
is number one. This is, you know, oh my God, this is a very unique and a very new fashion culture is coming up. Already, you know, street fashions, fashion culture was there, you know, each city. But, uh, you know, more making for uh, something, you know, unique, uh, something kind of making a magic, magical, you know, like uh, event. And uh, number two is uh, he invited me, and then uh, he composed to the my like, kind of the merchandise store. So that store is big. It right? looks like a long line, and I I'm waiting. I, I'm walking in a complex. Common is a this convention in a looks like you know rockstar. Like ah, Kadashi, yeah, yeah, like you know, want to be you know take a photo. Or looks like that. And also, like after ComplexCon, uh, in eBay or yeah, or something like that, you know, secondary market was the, my toy and my you know, merchandise was you know double price, triple price, you know, ten times expensive. Exactly, this is a new kind of the my you know kind of I don't know, like very familiar. The audience is there. So that's why, you know, oh my God, I was, you know, open eye, you know, again, 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 in these two days. So that was, you know, super new, you know, culture, I think. Would you talk a little bit about that culture too, Mark? Yeah, Andrew, sure. Like what, what um, well, we're what working we, on here? We, what Takashi's speaking about is we did an event um, last November uh, called Complex Con. It was our first convention, exhibit, sort of a convergence of art and fashion and music and education and there were panels and, and um, we really wanted to work with Takashi because really uh, the spirit of collaboration and the intention was to converge high and low together and to connect a newer generation to uh, his important body of work. Um, and I think, uh, and at that time, we, we got to meet you, you, you attended. Uh, and we realized how connected our values were from an intention point of view. The intention of that event being just over 48 hour thing and how the MCA here is seeking to create that energy and sort of reimagining this space with the sort of openness and invitation to a new audience and, and the community um, uh, at large, the same sort of spirit of what happened at, at, at ComplexCon. Um, and uh, I think that's what's so exciting for us to be a part of this, even in a small manner, is uh, because it's the first time we've ever actually done anything with a, a, a proper you know, art uh, institution. Um, and you've been an amazing part of your team's been amazing. We're going to be uh, launching um, a pop-up uh, truck that is designed with the motifs of the octopus. Um, and we'll have some special merchandise every weekend dropping. And it really is, um, you know, this bridge to new audience. And to really bring, uh, I think, what... Takashi has done either consciously, unconsciously through his whole career, connecting these divergent worlds together uh, in a way that you know folks just passing by over the summer 
could engage and, and hopefully draw more people into the MCA. And together, ComplexCon and Takashi's work, it's, we're, we're really excited to be a part of it. And, and on July 17th, you will be in conversation on the same stage with uh, Chicago-based fashion designer Virgil Abloh, who has right. also been a collaborator of yours, yes. and we're working together for an exhibition in 2019. And yeah. so I think we'll be talking about some of the same cultural je ne sais quoi that's happening right yeah. now in terms of this newer generation and what they're looking at and, and thinking about it. And yeah. so I think that's, that's going to be really exciting. I think collaboration is a bridge over fear. You know, like to collaborate either consciously, unconsciously, is to put aside your pride and ego and to create an energy together with others, uh, to discover a new voice for yourself at times. I think that's what's so special about this because when we got together, I don't think we came together with judgment, with um, any sort of high expectation of, oh, you, you know, what are the mechanics? We, we, we sort of came together maybe naively to just do something special together. I think that more people in, uh, certainly young people need to feel that uh, in a world that's so um, claustrophobic because of digital culture, that connecting with other people matters in real life. And uh, that hopefully is the subtext of our work together. Well, I know we want to open up the room to some questions. If anyone has questions, we'll bring a microphone to you. Yes, right here in front. Hi, uh, just on what you guys were talking about just now. My big question is how is merch and pop-up trucks helping the community? Isn't that just commerce? I think, you know, I think that's maybe perhaps one uh, respectfully cynical view. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, it inspires, there is a culture of young people aspiring to be the next Takashi, the next Virgil, the next designer, and we live in a world where the marketplaces of sort of big institutional brands um, uh, make it increasingly hard barriers to enter, and showing evidence that an artist, you know, can from a college body of work convert to do something that's so influential and and sort of uh, create uh, a um, you know, a wantedness in a marketplace around his or her body of work, with that sort of level of control, I think it's very inspiring to young people. And they want to be a part of that in a way that is different than, let's say, just buying a commodity at, um, you, you know, any other sort of conventional uh, retail outlet. And I think that those, that, that this sort of even the retraining of the product is in and of itself sort of a, the secondary market is in and of itself a little entrepreneurial ecosystem. When kids could buy and sell and create new businesses, there's new, new you know, very successful digital platforms that are emerging built on these new economies. I mean, I think uh, the face of commerce is changing and we're helping instigate that. It's not just more commerce, respectively. I wanted to ask Takashi uh, about uh, his approach to the creative process. If there is a, is there a team approach or is it more of a personal thing, uh, kind of a procedure of uh, planning and 
and conceiving of ideas, or is it a lot about serendipity uh, as to how you conceive of projects and ideas? I'm a フラットに読んで理解しちゃうんですよね。
ちろんミュージアムっていうのはそういったこうなんですかややこしくて抽象的でまだみんなが見ていないものをピックアップしたり紹介したりそれをもっとこうあの深く理解させたりするような機能もありつつもあのやっぱりこうオーディエンスの方がもう先に来てるというかあの理解力がものすごく早くなっているのでその現代美術の捉え方その消費の仕方あのなんですかね、オーディエンスのコミュニケーションの仕方そのものがベースビエンナレとか例えばドキュメントとかありますけどそういったあの昔ながらのスタイルとともに全く変わってきてるスタイルも今登場し始めてそれの一つの例がやっぱり今僕だったり今僕もコンプレックスにもっとインボーブしたいと思うしな,なんかこうまだちょっとうまく言えないんですけど例えばだからさっき今の質問で「あのまー、あ、ちゃんダイズ」を見にあるかなっていうのは最もあの期待できるあの未来を期待できるようなあのコミュニケーションのあり方だと思うので僕的にはもうポジティブというかそういうふうになってくれることを願っているので、まあ、こういう衣装を持ってきているのですごくありがたいですね。I'm sorry, so long. <laughs> Um, very, really truthfully, this is,、um, you know, not trying to flatter anyone, but、um, for me,、um, Mark and his complex con, when I went to see it, I really felt, well, this has just completely changed everything.、Um, and what I just mentioned earlier about maybe street fashion industry、um, getting away and sort of escaping from the, the Paris scene and stuff like that, that's not really my field, so I don't know the reality of it. But、um, what I felt was that the, the way we perceive art and how we consume art has really also changed. That's what I felt at the、uh, Complex Con. For example, we look at、um, Lonely Planet or something,、um, what I mentioned was the Japanese version of it.、Um, and if you're looking at the guidebook of Chicago and look at、um, ACMCA entry, it talks about Don Flavin. And we were talking about how、um, you, early on you put on Don Flavin's show, and it was really. Ill-received, people didn't understand anything about it.、Um, but I think um, nowadays um, you know, we have、uh, internet and Wikipedia, so whether it's minimalism, conceptual art,、um, anything, we, we can just look up and we can just understand everything flatly on the same plane. And in the same way, people look at、um, merchandise,、um, merchandise made from art, and you just look at it online and everyone understands everything,、um, you know, where it came from, what it means. Kind of flatly. So,、um, the museum's role might be still to, to find, excavate, find something new that people still don't know,、um, introduce abstract ideas, try to explain and deepen the understanding,、um, and things like that. But I think the audience is actually、um, already much further ahead, and their, their understanding, the rate of understanding is so fast. Um, so,、um, I think the way, the style of consuming contemporary art, I think, is really changing. And although there's、uh, Venice Biennale and different,、uh, more traditional w a y of looking at、um, art, there's a different style of、uh, perceiving and consuming contemporary art is developing. And that has,、um, maybe that is connected to what you, know, you do, Mark and Complex Con, or what I do. And,、um, The comment, your comment about your friend,、um, you know, thinking about my exhibition and thinking, oh, I want to see what merchandise there is,、um, that really is, makes me very hopeful about the future of this direction that I was just talking about. So I feel very positive about it. And、uh, that's 
because that's like a kind of um, effect that I'm hoping for. That's why I'm wearing this kind of costume. <laughs> can, I, can I add something to this? Um, I think, you know, Takashi's super flat work was very prescient and it's obviously born in this tradition of Warhol and Herring and uh, the other, other artists of like. And I think that when we come with our own bias and sort of our own judgment, usually formed by our age and our history of saying what is or is not art, I think that handicaps um, the, uh, the artist. And for a new young generation who wants a piece of Takashi art or a piece of Takashi philosophically, tangibly, um, the merchandise uh, is an accessible way to reach that. Um, and I don't think, uh, uh, I think it's actually, it's, I, I don't, someone could look it up, but you know, Warhol famously said something about art and business. There's a famous quote, uh, like, what is real art? Is art really business? And, it, um, and I think in some ways the models that we're trying to stretch, and this is maybe a little bit wonky uh, CNBC business talk, but the reimagining of the models and the approach does create more opportunity for new artists. That's the other thing that maybe we're not emphasizing here is that at Complex Con, there were hundreds of exhibitors. So that energy spilled over to guys who a year ago were not known, who suddenly post that event had a community and were known. And I think um, uh, this sort of willingness to dare and try and have the octopus eat its own leg, um, uh, you discover and grow new things. It really is, the, the metaphors here are really powerful. And for young people coming to this exhibit, yes, they might be able to come and see the truck and get the quote merch, which is like one transaction. But another transaction is to walk into the room where there's the work that he's embarrassed by. Right, because we were all those creators, right? The, those young people are at that age now that they don't know to be certain or embarrassed by their work. You walk through this 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 uh, exhibition for me last night. I had the, the blessing of seeing it. Michael has done an amazing job, um, but it is a walk through mastery, going from finding and seeing an artist, finding his voice through the the final room. I don't want to give away the punchline, but like it is an exhibition of mastery. Thank you all for coming this morning. I started as a commercial artist, and I wanted to finish as a business artist. During the hippie era, people put down the idea of business. They'd say money is bad, and working is bad. But making money is art, and working is art, and good business is the best art.